0: Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy-to-enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience. Anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control hot sauce or visit TexasPeteFoodService.com for more information. Welcome another girls episode. We get these more often now. Sam's traveling all the time. We get to do these all the time. Yeah. We got to keep him out of office more. (laughs) I think we said that last time too. So I think he's just listening to us. It's working. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) We know he
1: doesn't listen to this podcast,
0: (laughs) but we thank all you dear listeners for not being like our boss and actually listening. (laughs) All right. So this has been a crazy week. I think it's safe to say that it's been pretty crazy. We have seen earnings
2: up out the butt. It's a lot. There's a lot of earnings. Yeah. Um. To put a definition on out the butt. Um. <laughs> yesterday and today. Today's Thursday. Yesterday and today, there were 16 earnings calls. Um. Or will be by the end of the day today that we will have um, listened to or check the numbers on and reported on. Um. Just in two days, and it's been you know a couple weeks of not quite this level, but a couple weeks of earnings reports already.
3: So, yeah, and our colleague Alicia, I'm not going to point out who exactly it was, but our colleague Alicia asked one of the CEOs that reported this week uh, why they're doing this to us, why they are <laughs> yeah. all reporting their earnings in the exact same two days, and the answer was to keep you guys on your toes. Uh, Well, definitely point well made because I think that we, throughout this whirlwind week, I think we learned a lot about what's going on in the industry.
0: Yeah, so that's a great segue, Joanna. What did you guys learn about – I mean, (laughs) I I covered a little bit in the intro that traffic was a huge through line throughout brands that were doing – brands that had great traffic versus brands that were working on traffic. I think that's the big theme that I've really pulled out, but there are some other smaller threads that we've definitely – we're going to talk about. I know we're going to talk about them as we go through. So what do you guys think this is a baseline for the earnings season so far?
2: Yeah. Um. So a lot of companies are reporting dips in traffic. Something that's interesting there, though, is that a lot of companies seem to be reporting that traffic is coming back already. So at the beginning of Q3, we saw some big dips in traffic. Um. But Wendy specifically reported that it came back up at the end of Q3, Uh, I listened to the Shake Shack call today, and they're reporting that traffic was down in Q3, but up in October. Uh, So these earnings are always interesting because if there's something negative to report, uh, executives are always quick to tell you if they have since turned it around. Uh, So, of course, we'll have to wait another three months to see if the pattern holds for Q4, if there was something interesting about October, uh, but yeah, traffic is something to keep an eye on. It's one of those, you know, unpredictable macroeconomic question marks of like, are people still dining out? Are they trading down? Uh, McDonald's seems to think so. And so it's just something interesting to keep an eye on. I don't know if that was a summertime blip or something more long term that we might see coming. Well, something Alicia talked about is that. McDonald's has raised prices over ten percent, which is a lot
0: for McDonald's, which is known as a value player. And so that may be a part of why they're seeing these traffic dips. And they did say that they expect to see their chicken become a billion dollar market. Like that's crazy. And that is gonna increase their traffic even more. But
3: um so Joanna, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say it was something that I, I find really interesting, the the through line here, like you said, is traffic, but Different brands are trying different strategies and have different takes on exactly what, what, um, hello, that's the word is customers, (laughs) what customers are doing. Um, because some people are raising prices, some people say, no, don't raise prices. Customers are not spending as much right now. Um, you know, some people are saying, some brands are saying, you know, their traffic is up, Starbucks, uh, being one of those. Some people, some brands are saying, you know, traffic is faltering. Uh, there is definitely that I know that Brinker had actually said that again, they had that boost in October. If I had to guess that Q4 October through December is, is a lot easier for uh, certain brands to get a boost in traffic, especially QSR. as you have, um, the, the time of year, a lot of people are going out to eat and also all the fun, uh, LT holiday themed Halloween and Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and whatnot themed LTOs. Um, But it is just so interesting to me how different brands have different takes on exactly what customer behavior is. I think we're honestly still trying, macroeconomics aside, I think we're still trying to figure out what the customer is doing um, now, you know, three years, three and a half years after the pandemic. What are are we doing right now?
0: (laughs) Well, and Texas Roadhouse is a really interesting marker for this because Texas Roadhouse is casual dining, which is a brand or a group of restaurants that we've seen traffic dip dip for them more than dip I think in some cases and but Texas Roadhouse is has increased traffic and so when we talk about trade down it's interesting to think about Texas Roadhouse because they are typically what you would trade down from and Chipotle the same thing you trade down from Chipotle to a McDonald's and so both of those brands I think are really interesting. Alicia Kelso wrote a great article about how they what they have in common, which you know you would never think of those two brands having anything in common. Um her story was really great and it was just saying that like these two these two brands, they aren't necessarily daily brands, so you don't feel the pricing that Chipotle's taken, which is twenty five percent. Um you don't feel that, but you you get to experience more of a more of an occasion. Texas Roadhouse is an occasion. You go there, you have the peanuts. I've never been to one, but at least she told me all about the peanuts, so now I know. Um, <laughs> I know about the peanuts now. <laughs> and so we were, she was just saying that these occasion restaurants are doing well because they have the it factor of you don't want to lose something fun. You don't want to lose that when you trade down. You want to stay with the things that make you feel good, like hospitality at Texas Roadhouse that makes people feel great. Their bread and honey butter. Um see I know so much about Texas Roadhouse now. Aren't you proud of me, Leah? <laughs> yeah, I'd be prouder if you went to one. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere near me. I wanna go so bad. I Texas Roadhouse, open up in New York City so I can come to you. I will be so I will be the first person in line. Trust me, I will be there. Um <laughs> so th- that was an interesting through line that Alicia pointed out for those two. And when we look at traffic numbers Starbucks makes total sense, and they're going to see even more traffic increases, I'm sure, as the holidays come up with their new drinks, um, which they just released on this week. Um, So I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what traffic numbers do, but there are some interesting standouts so
2: far. Totally, and Texas Red House is also, like, they're an experiential restaurant, like you said, but they're also heavily focused on off-premises right now. They are a brand that did it right during the pandemic and have just not let up on their focus there, which is working out for them. Because as their customers come back and say, hey, I want to go, like, we've been to Texas Roadhouse since 2019, like, let's get back in there. Uh, But they're still sending food out to customers at the same rate that they were before. Uh, but that's also as Joanna said, another example of different brands taking different strategies because while we've got Texas Roadhouse focused on off premises, um, Shake Shack is really leaning into drive-throughs. They've hinted at some new prototypes coming out in the near future. But meanwhile, you've got McDonald's, which is saying, Nope, we're gonna put all of our time and investment into traditional restaurant formats. And that's where they're, you know, placing all their bets. So it's another case of, you know, different different strategies for different restaurants and there's no right or wrong way to do it.
3: Yeah. I think that there's also a pretty wide chasm between, in, in terms of different types of restaurants and the, and their approach that they could take uh, between experiential restaurants like Texas Roadhouse uh, and other casual dining concepts versus I guess, more limited service. And with limited service restaurants, it's really a lot about the the price um and the value that you're getting. And um something that Papa John's really congratulate themselves on today uh during their earnings is that they were saying that they've been avoiding menu price increases. They're they're saying, hey, a lot of our colleagues are doing this. Um but we we are not because we want to be able to be the go-to for families to be able to place an order and get a full meal for family four for twenty bucks, which they claim you can't do with other with drive through type restaurants, which I'm not so sure about that, but um uh, but the the point being is that I think that there's really a big difference in those two types of strategies um, and they could both work um and I think we'll see kind of in the long run um, which of these different types of strategies uh, to go versus to stay, uh, price increases versus price stagnation, experience versus non experience uh, will win out.
0: I'm always curious to see or I have been in this inflationary environment where inflation is cooling, um, are these brands going to bring their prices down or are they going to stay at this higher price point? I mean, we talked about Chipotle um, who, there was a survey that came out last year that said that Chipotle was 10% cheaper than its competitors. So they had room to go on pricing. So really it's only 15% higher, but everybody else has raised prices. So Chipotle in theory still has room to take price, but it doesn't I just feel like consumers must be getting tired of this. That like, but is it a case of once you ring the bell, you can't unring it? Like, I don't, I don't really know what the right answer is on that. But I'm curious to know if this is gonna, if people are gonna have more promos. We saw Chipotle do its national burrito, which was kind of a disaster, um, as it has been in years past. So um, I wonder if we're gonna see more promotions. But we talked about that during the last recession that there was a lot of promotions, but it didn't really help. And no one really wants, it seems like no one wants to do promotions anymore. It seems like they're more trouble than it's worth. The national cheeseburger day um, or month, whatever it was, saw McDonald's and Wendy's apps completely die. So I think that promotions are tricky, with, especially because you're using technology. But I think they're tricky because they don't want to be known as a player who always is giving out deals. So I guess I'm kind of in, mixed on what I think about the pricing versus deals. I and mean, what do you guys think about that?
3: Yeah, I think that uh that's that's something we've been talking about for a long time now, months. I want to say I don't remember when the last time I wrote about that the um the promotions uh promotions versus deals and uh or not taking any promotions and just focusing on everyday value. Uh I wrote a story on that. I want to say it was like 6 or 8 months ago. Um, and so we've been thinking about that for a long time and it's, and it's a strategy that, again, this is this kind of like this chasm between these two different types of strategies. That's another one that we could put on there is, um, promotions versus everyday value. And that's something that Papa John's also talked about. Um, and, um, they were talking about how their competitor, their biggest competitor, i.e. Domino, so they didn't say it by name, um, is all about promotions lately. They've been doing the 50% off thing. Um, and they've just been really promotion heavy. Um, and Papa John's is saying, well, we want to just be more about the everyday value. Um, and then people can spend more on the more expensive pizzas and whatnot if they want. Um, and so these are two different, obviously, two very different strategies. And I think it just really depends on your customer base, which which one works.
2: Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One is that I think some brands are starting to lean more into Different kinds of marketing promotions. So instead of doing markdowns or value, they're leaning into celebrity partnerships and things like that. Um, not to harp on Shake Shack, but I spent like all morning listening to the call. So it's just on my mind. But they have um, an upcoming promote, or I think it launched yesterday their promotion um, to promote the movie Trolls. Um, and so that's something that, you know, the consumer doesn't get anything free out of it. You know, you have to pay for the troll shake and um, things like that, but they're expecting a certain amount of traffic increases because a lot of their units are in the same shopping centers as movie theaters. Uh, so you're taking your kids to see the trolls movie. You have to walk past the shake shack. There's a giant milkshake poster in the window with their favorite character. And there you have it. Um, so that's a different kind of way that, uh, Restaurants can lean into marketing without necessarily taking value. Um, The other thought is that, you know, as these things do these days, rely so heavily on technology. That's why it's smart for brands such as Wingstop uh, to be developing their own tech platforms. Now, of course, you know, it was the McDonald's app that crashed uh, back in the day. But Wingstop, I think I'm really, really interested to see them roll out their tech stack Uh, which is going to go way beyond an app. It's like a whole thing. Um, I don't don't know technology. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be talking about it, but I'm really interested to watch them roll it out, see what they do with it. And I just, I have higher hopes and expectations for Wingstop's proprietary tech stop than I have for a lot of brands in the past.
0: I agree. I have a lot of hopes for them because they are this tech forward brand. They are They are, in some cases, considered more of a tech company than a restaurant company. We've seen a few of those kind of stories come out. You know, Sweetgreen reports aftermarket today. So another tech company that I haven't seen very high hopes for from people recently. Um, But I think I'm also excited to see Kava's numbers. I think that's like the big mystery for me that I can't wait to see.
3: Yeah, for sure. I was actually kind of surprised that uh speaking of, I was hoping we would uh talk about Wingstop because uh you know obviously as, as a tech reporter I spent a lot of time thinking ab- about this stuff and I was kind of surprised that for the most part, besides Wingstop, I feel like this week um, you know, not a lot of restaurants were uh were talking uh during during uh during the crazy earnings season. not a lot of brands were talking about technology. Um, in fact, it came up in the Papa John's uh, earnings call and they just kind of breezed over it saying, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll invest more in our loyalty program, but didn't really go into detail. Um, and so I think it's really impressive that they're launching a proprietary, uh, platform, uh, a proprietary tech platform. Um, and that they are, and, and one of the words they used is going to be personalization, which means data. And obviously that's huge, D- uh, digital personalization, through data uh, is is the, uh, the the next big thing, or I guess the current big thing uh, for restaurants to take control of and take advantage of, um, and to make the uh, the experience again that word experience even more and more hyper personalized for customers, so that they keep coming back, and so that you can inch up those traffic numbers. I am really really good at bringing bring that back around then. <laughs>
0: So let's talk a little bit about McDonald's because, you know, I mentioned they're the bellwether for the industry. Alicia Kelsey talked about it a bunch that McDonald's is it when you talk about restaurant brands and finances like that's that's the brand you always want to follow. And they said their chicken is going to be a huge business moving forward, which we've seen plenty in the fact that all these chains have been doing chicken wars. And it's not just chicken sandwiches. It's the chicken wars now. I mean, chicken is what we've seen from Gen Z, the most important item on the menu and boneless chicken is it. And so it's, I'm curious to know what you guys think about their budding chicken business, budding AKA billion dollars. Um, what you guys think about that and what McDonald's kind of means for the industry.
3: I'm not that surprised that chicken is doing so incredibly well for them. Uh, they're not the only brand that mentioned, uh, how well chicken is doing. Uh, Brinker also said, uh, how they're focused so much on their chicken crispers. Um, and I just think that it, it has become such – it's it's so incredible because ever since the, the chicken wars began, um, at this point, was it four years ago, three years ago, whenever it was, um, it's just amazing how much it's not really so much a, a blip or a trend, but it's just become this massive business, obviously – uh, obviously, chicken existed before four years ago and was on menus everywhere, but I just think that it had kind of taken a backseat to other proteins, like especially beef, burgers, um, etc. And so I'm just really not that surprised that uh, McDonald's is leaning into this because they see where the industry has gone uh, in terms of uh, consumer preferences.
2: Yeah, it's fun to watch. It's kind of um, like you said, the the wars started in 2019. I'm putting quotes around all of those. It doesn't really feel like the best language to use. But anyway, um, and it does kind of feel like there's just suddenly now a surge of various chicken news. Like there wasn't a specific, you know, everybody can point to the day that Popeye's launched their chicken sandwich in 2019 as like a trigger point there hasn't been one this year, but it's like all of a sudden you look around and you're like, well, McDonald's is leaning all the way into chicken. Taco Bell is testing chicken nuggets. Like, I mean, and even just like in general, you know, I would say like one of the buzziest chains right now is Raising Cane's, which like, what do they do? Chicken exclusively. You know, that's their whole thing. We have chicken and that's it. Uh, So it's just been fascinating to kind of see. It's almost like, it happened all at once, but also like very slowly. Like all of a sudden I woke up today and I was like, Oh, I can get a chicken nugget literally anywhere, including Taco Bell. Um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, oh,
3: I'm sorry, I didn't mean to drop. Oh. No,
2: it's okay. The last thing I was just gonna say is that I am hearing well, okay, I'm listening to more earnings calls than I usually do this quarter, but I am hearing more chatter about uh specifically beef prices and beef inflation. Uh so I do think that's obviously gonna be a big piece of it is like well uh let's see beef is really expensive right now so let's just really push chicken um but yeah those are my thoughts
3: yeah i think that um the the price of beef could definitely be impacting it um the the trend actually that i'm seeing not just the obviously the chicken sandwich is huge as we said but the specific menu item that i think is really big the past few months uh is actually boneless wings um slash chicken nuggets because they are really the same thing <laughs> sorry i don't know if that's a controversial opinion but it is it's oh my just god i like would totally
0: pudding. agree with you let's well, our colleague Brett Born is big on that
3: but speaking of brett he actually wrote a trend piece on how boneless chicken is surging on menus um you know he talked about um he talked about Brinker. He talked about um uh, what else did he talk about um a a few different brands that is just, it's just really surging. And so I'm really not surprised at Taco Bell trying to be like, Hey, we'll do the same thing. I haven't had the Taco Bell, uh, chicken nuggets yet. And I'm really curious. Um, but I, I do think we could kind of put that all in the same kind of category. Cause they're very similar. I mean, Taco
0: Bell did chicken wings and they were very good wings. Yeah. Um, and they sold out really quickly. So I have a feeling their Nuggets are just going to go gangbusters, just like KFC's Nuggets did. KFC, who you would imagine would have a Nugget, but didn't for some reason. And then their Nugget did gangbusters. And so I think it just shows that people really want boneless chicken, which is weird because I would have never thought the boneless chicken would have been like Gen Z's favorite thing. But for some reason, that's, that's what they, they're asking for. It, they want it and they're getting it at every chain. So it's obviously a big market to go into. Um, so, do you guys have any last thoughts on earnings before I let you go? No, I think that's a good note to end on. I think so, too. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy-to-enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience. Anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control, hot sauce, or visit TexasPeteFoodService.com for more information.
4: Hi, this is Alicia Kelso. I am the executive editor at Nation's Restaurant News, and I am here live at Create the Experience in Palm Springs, California. And I am with Lauren Fernandez, who is the founder of Full Course. And she um, has a deep history in the restaurant industry. Lauren, thank you for coming. And I want you to sort of walk through your really impressive experience and into full course and what it is.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here. It was great to be on stage. I just want to give you guys a shout out for having such an incredible, diverse lineup. I really appreciate that. Every time you open a door and put a woman on stage, a minority on stage, I just high five you. So what I want to say about my career is it's been an interesting journey, and I'm an attorney by profession with an MBA, both from Emory, and my product development background started in about 2006, and so it took me on a path to pharma land where I worked for Novartis and launched a $2 billion product across the world. Pretty cool stuff. I was very young in my career, but very quickly figured out that that doesn't happen often. So I got one shot at that, and it was probably going to be another decade before it happened again. And I was trying to figure out what next, and I got a call from someone at Focus Brands who had gone to business school with me, and she was doing licensing at the time on two consumer packaged goods. So when I met with Russ Umfenhauer, the then CEO, the rest is history, so they say. I figured if I wanted to jump from pharma to food... Focus Brands was the place to do it. At the time, the talent in that room was exceptional. And we had a phenomenal time. I was there for a little over three years. And when I left, I was looking to grow professionally. And Russ, always a phenomenal mentor, said to me, you need operations experience because you're always going to get pigeonholed as a lawyer. And so I said, yes, sir. Where do I get that? (laughs) And he said, silly, go buy a restaurant. And so... I did. Um, I, with some partners, formed Origin Development Group, we ended up being multi-unit franchisees of the Chicken Salad Chick system, which was a phenomenal journey to be that early in the brand and really have that experience of seeing Stacy grow the company, Stacey Brown, the founder of Chicken Salad Chick at that time, and watch that brand through its early evolution. It was really there. Uh, our units were, I think in sequence, like one of them was store number six, I think the last one that we opened was store number 98 in their system. So just being on that ride with them and having a front row seat and being the largest multi-unit franchisee in the system at that time just really gave me such an understanding of what it takes to grow and scale, not just from the franchisor side, but also from the franchisee side and what it took for capital, (laughs) right? Employee management, all the things, the development angle. And I started to develop this thesis that, Early-stage restaurants need the firepower and the talent that we brought to the brands at Focus, but they needed them earlier. So things like understanding scale of product, how to manufacture to create efficiencies and scale, what kinds of development are appropriate early, why not non-traditional, right? And it it was kind of gnawing at the back of me and eventually became the genesis of Full Course, which is where we are today. Yeah. So I started full course. I actually incubated it in 2019 in stealth mode. We officially launched it in 2020. And we became very quickly focused on people and education. We really felt like that was an important place to start given everything that was going on with the pandemic. How can I teach, coach and train all of these independent restaurateurs how to add product and get it out the door quickly? Sort of where my head was at but it became the the really like i think the heart of the company if you will was this focus on people closing the education gap and making sure that was always our focus. but of course we invest in the space mm-hmm. and so we have a fund that we raise or constantly raising capital to deploy in the space particularly with a focus on brands that are culturally representative, owned by women, veterans, whatever. we really want to make sure we're leveling the playing field and everyone has an equal opportunity to access that capital. but we're also operators. we get in there and we work these brands with the founders and next to them as a minority partner. We don't take over their business and we focus on developing for them, right? Like adding all those channels to the business that we are used to doing those strategies
4: from focus, from other brands that we've worked for. So. Great. Um, That is certainly unique experience. And I think that's why so many people are just pouring into what you say here. We, obviously the, the impetus behind create is to, um, help educate these emerging operators. So they want to know what you're saying, especially on that finance piece, because a lot of these folks, they start concepts, you know, because they are foodies, um, you know, and they have the service uh, component. You know, I've talked to several people who don't know how to read a P&L, you know, th- those are challenges and securing finances, you know, people get into the restaurant industry be- because they want, they want to be on the food side. So Tell walk me through some pieces of, pieces of advice on how small concepts and emerging concepts can and maybe should secure financing. You know for that growth component. I think the first
1: thing to understand is that financing or capital, let's call it, can come in many forms. And at its top level, it can be equity, where you give up points in the company. It can be debt where you pay to borrow that money, just like a loan, or it can be grants or gifts, right? Those are really three main categories. Within those categories, there are different vehicles or structures that give an early and emerging stage brand more control. I think the biggest danger to these emerging brands is that their lack of access to capital in the traditional formats, and I'm using air quotes here, like a bank, right, Uh, really hamper their ability to grow. And the business often may even fail because it's undercapitalized. And so having them understand, look, there are a million different ways that you can go and raise that capital. And in those earlier stages, it's probably safer to stick with debt as long as you can service the debt. And to give up equity early is usually highly problematic because you've got those people around your table now potentially, indefinitely. And once you give up a slice of equity, it's gone forever. You can't, in theory, resell that, right? And if you sell it at too low a price too early, you're in danger of not having that to A, maintain control of the company, B, sell at a price later that's higher, and C, with the wrong partners. I see a lot of C. I see a lot of people taking money from the wrong people too early. And I think if you can swing it, structured debt options, whether it's a friends and family raise or it's crowdsourcing that debt. You know, um, there's some creative vehicles out there around your own assets that are fairly low risk. So like one example would be borrowing against your 401k or your life, your whole life insurance policy, which most people don't understand, but that doesn't actually show up on your credit report. Mm -hmm. So I really want to encourage people to know the entire spectrum of capital options out there to really evaluate them pretty continually on risk versus reward to them, and put together a blended strategy that really like gets them over those those finish lines.
4: Uh, it, it intrigues me that you say you hear far too often that people have the the wrong partners. Yeah H- how do you how do you look for red flags there? I mean, <laughs> you <laughs> oh, take them oh, wow. for a drink and then decide that you're not compatible, or? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I will
1: start with something my dad always said to me, which is know thyself. So I think this sounds a little counterintuitive, but it's actually really brilliant. You have to know your strengths and weaknesses. And if you are not real about that and you put someone around your table that thinks that they're helping you, but they're stepping over your strengths, I don't think that that's additive. If you can find value add investors, fabulous, get them. And in those cases, I think some equity or some upside profit sharing is a great way to go. And again, people have to think creatively about this. Maybe you bring them to the table and it's a convertible debt note that switches to equity later. Maybe you bring them to the table and it's debt, but they have profit sharing at a certain level of participation. However, they don't actually have equity points in the company. There are so many shades of gray in the way you can structure this and you just got to get creative. But I think being clear about who you are as a founder, being clear about what it is you need – will help you shift out of kind of taking the easy carrot that's in front of you. And I think a lot of people often just jump at that first offer, sure. and it's not the right thing to do.
4: Sure. Um, the macro environment, i I'm tasked with writing about this, and it's the weirdest. <laughs> I mean, I've been covering this industry for 12 years, and I don't know how to articulate what is happening now. The consumer seems strong still, and... You know, we had some bank issues a couple months ago. And I mean, how do you manage that as an emerging mm-hmm. operator? Um, you know, all of the disparate information and the disparate macro conditions that are happening. And where does the banking crisis, there's my air quotes because it seemed real short-lived, but I don't know mm-hmm. enough, obviously. How does that fit in? Where are we now?
1: I think that we, in recent history a la 1919 have not really had a good example of what a global pandemic does to economies. Certainly not in first world economies, right, where we're sitting in the U.S. Now, that said, what has happened is many major banks pulled back on big lending deals because they didn't want to underwrite huge M&A transactions in our space not knowing where the interest rates were going to land. And similarly, lots of private equities are just sitting on powder kegged capital waiting to do it because they don't want to write 100% equity checks where they're paying all cash for a deal. Most private equity groups are heavily leveraged when they do their deals, either before or part of the deal structure or after, right? It's just kind of how it works. Now, the reality is a pretty big deal just came down the pike with Subway. And, um, as a veteran, I heard about that. Hear
4: about that? Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> in my own backyard, nonetheless, it's work capital where, you know, I used to work. And so, you know, in, in theory to me, I thought that was great because it kind of heralded, okay, m and is loosening up. Here it comes. Expect a crescendo is here's what's going on. Many brands have deals out there packaged and ready to go, whether it's for financing It's for some kind of partial liquidity event. It's for a full transaction, whatever. And those deals are sitting there waiting to be done. So I think we have started to see the beginnings of the bigger banks loosening up on their lending, getting comfortable that we are where we are. It's unlikely the interest rates are going to do too many more crazy, crazy things because we've got an election cycle coming up. We all know to read between the lines there. And I think... Well, what will happen is that lending loosening at the top will signal strength and confidence in the sector of restaurants generally, which will then trickle down to regional banks, which will then trickle down to state and community banks, right? And so I think that we will see emerging restaurateurs benefit from that, but certainly not for another six to eight months. I think it's going to take us a minute to see the kind of effects of that play out and I'm kind of basing that on the thesis that we're going to see some more m a activity at the time.
4: Sure. I appreciate the optimism. And I think after what, the, what this industry has been through six to eight months doesn't seem like a long time. <laughs> well, right. Isn't but it? people got to eat. People got to eat. And, and as an investor, let's go back and look from like 06
1: to 09. We were crying into our Wheaties over 3% comp growth year over year. And I remember sitting around the table at focus and being like, that seems pretty good to me. Like, and someone explaining to me, like, no, that's just natural growth, like the population growing, people eating more, literally, like that's flat. And I was like, Oh, cool, right? Yeah. And they were like, No, not cool. I'm like, no, no, but that's that's better than most industries. And so to me, I've always loved banking on the fact that people have to eat. I particularly love Fast Casual because it's in the middle. It's not QSR. When people have inflationary pressures on their wallet, they tend to stay in the lane of Fast Casual or trade down from finer dining. And we like it. I mean, most of the outlooks on that segment for the next five years have the growth year over year at an adjusted Kager of 9 to 13%. As a segment. Yeah. So I think that's reflecting consumer behavior generally, but also some macroeconomic pressures.
4: Okay. So you're bullish on fast cash. Flow. Oh,
1: absolutely.
4: Yeah. That is my lane for investing. <laughs> I love it. What about casual? Because we've seen that that space really fascinates me right now because we've we're seeing like Olive Garden just Killing it right now. And then so we're seeing significant retrenchment in, in traffic elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, Texas Roadhouse is anomalous in general, but it just seems all over the map. So what are your you know general opinions about how consumers are uh, using the casual dining space? Or is it brand by brand?
1: You know, I do think it's a little bit brand by brand. I think that that's a fair way of putting it. However, I do think that we've reprogrammed about 20 years of consumer behavior and about two and a half years of a pandemic. (laughs) Fair. So suddenly the service proposition is an all or nothing kind of thing, which is so fascinating to me. I think in the mind of a consumer, they're like, I'm either going to go pay for great service at a full service restaurant and I'm going to ding you if you mess it up. Or I'm going to accept that there's some hybrid of an iPad I'm going to have to order on, a QR code at a table, and I might get help if I you know shout loud enough. And I'm not trying to be glib here, but rather just to say we had such a polarization of available labor and service that was available to customers that I think we reset expectations. And so now when you roll up into a casual dining environment, and they nail it on the service, you look like a rock star. Sure. And I'm here for that, right? So I, I think we this polarization to the tablet era, the self-serve era, the limited labor model that everyone kind of had to adopt really changed the way consumers started thinking about service. And I would love for there to be an iteration of casual where you can choose the level of service. So let's say you walk up into a restaurant You can self-serve all the way through and pay a little bit less, or you can walk in and get, you know, some hybrid version of table service paying an extra couple bucks. Like, man, just put the choice in the consumer's hands, you know? That's kind of how I'm thinking about it.
4: Interesting. All right, final question, Um, and I'm going to tie it up with something we talked about in the beginning when you were providing an overview about, um, you know, full course. The diversity, women in food service, all that stuff is very important to me personally, um, to the team at NRN. And I, I just want to sort of understand why it is a priority for full course and the challenges that exist uh, with, you know, minority operators with, you know, and why that has has been something that you are focused on.
1: So many reasons It took me a really long time to confront this problem and think of the right solution, which is really what full course is. And I remember sitting next to my husband in 2019, and and, and I've told this story a couple times, but it it was really a profound moment because he'd heard me complain about some of the things I'd experienced as a woman. He'd seen it, he understood it, and always had a ton of empathy, but doesn't ever take excuses for me either. And we were sitting down, and he's, we were talking through the solutions, which eventually became the foundation for Full Course. And I said, I just don't know that I can do this without raising my own capital, like without being in control of how we deploy that capital. Because private equity is notoriously white and male, as is most, most of finance. And I was really wary to trust that mission of making – more seats at the table available to the underrepresented founder, women, minorities, immigrants, single parents, veterans, you name it, to just anyone. And I really felt like it had to be a complete solution. And and I was struggling with that because that that was a stretch for me. That was a big step outside of my comfort zone. And he looked at me and he said, if you don't do it, nobody will. And you, you, (laughs) mic drop, right? I, I, I was like, man, here we go. And so we started financially modeling the company, what it would look like to be investors. What did fair and equitable investment look like? Now, look, I really genuinely believe as the daughter of an immigrant, I'm first-generation Cuban-American. I have always been in very male-dominated industries. And I'm down with the fact that I have just worked four times harder for everything in my career And I make no apologies for that. I don't want a tiny violin either. And here's the thing. I recognize that hustle. And I will bank it every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And statistically, if you look at minority-owned businesses, they consistently outperform their white counterparts. You look at what happens on the finance side, they are half as likely to get funded by a bank, whether it's a fear of rejection or an outright bias. And let's face it, especially if you have immigrated to this country, or even if you're first or second generation, you just don't have those deep networks. And there's nothing wrong with the people who do have them. Good for you. But there are so many of us out there, and we are representative of what this country is made of what makes us amazing. I am so grateful to be an American. I'm grateful that I am at a place where I can have my voice. I'm grateful that we have entrepreneurial opportunity and that I can exercise my right to put my money and my effort behind something like full course. And to me, that's how we're going to make a difference. If you want to see this industry change in five to seven years, start banking the people who represent this country.
4: Very good. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's awesome. And that's why we have you here. And uh, I'm glad that we have your voice here, too. It's uh, You've just been remarkable at the show and uh, we appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you.
5: So, Sahil Raman, uh it seems kind of like we were discussing this earlier before we got all hooked up and recorded that maybe Indian food is the future. And you have Rasa, which has, what, five units now?
6: Yep. We uh, we just opened our fifth restaurant a couple months back. And where is it? be uh, opened up in Rockville, Maryland. So we now have restaurants in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia.
5: And why don't you tell our audience about Rasa?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So Rasa is an Indian fast casual restaurant brand that my business partner Rahul Vinod and I opened back in 2017. So our fathers are actually business partners. They have been... Uh, they've been working together for over thirty years. They opened their first restaurant back in nineteen ninety one, and you know Rahul and I came on the scene in nineteen ninety. So quite literally, since we could walk, we've been doing so inside of Indian restaurants. And the, uh, the the long and short of it is, as we were growing up, today Indian food and Indian culture has become quite quite sexy. There's a lot of people who are really, really excited to go to an Indian wedding or there's a lot of different Indian spices that have gotten popular, whether that's turmeric or so on and so forth. And even culturally, things like yoga and meditation and astrology, many things that have come from the East are now rising in popularity. And but, Bollywood. Oh, which yeah. we didn't care about before. Ab- and now we do. Absolutely. And so when we were kids, opposed to today where being Indians quite cool it was, I mean, you'd get picked on big time, right? You know, I'd eat turkey sandwiches in school. You'd get get things like, oh, it's the Indiana Jones at the Monkey Brains or, you know, you'd have the thank you come again and all of that kind of stuff. And so for us, we always dreamt about taking the food and the flavors that we grew up loving from our family's restaurants and bringing those to people in a more accessible way. And thus, Rosso was born.
5: And so what's the what's the menu like?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So the way it works is... We've tried to take the fine dining Indian flavors and bring it into a much more fast casual accessible format. So there's two different ways you can experience it. You can go with one of our set bowls. So we've got seven or eight set bowls that you can choose from. These are our chefs' favorites. If you're not as familiar with Indian food or you're a little a little nervous to try something new, this is a great way to get acclimated. And if you're, you know, if you love Indian food or you're a seasoned fast casual vet, you start with picking a base. So we've got things like South Indian rice noodles, lemon turmeric rice, super grains, and basmati. And then from there, you pick a main. We've got a bunch of veg and non-veg options. So things like sweet potato tikis. We've got a tofu and cauliflower. We also have turmeric ginger shrimp, lamb kebab, so on and so forth. And then from there, you pick a sauce. We've got four different sauces, all different heat profiles. You pick a fresh veggie, things like green beans, eggplant, so on like that. And then you finish it off with toppings, and chutneys, which are kind of like Indian condiments. And so the idea is that you can get a really high quality Indian meal at a really affordable price point quickly in a fun and playful setting.
5: So how did you decide what, because India is big and a lot of different flavors. So how did you decide what were going to be the the core products of your menu?
6: Totally. and, And you're absolutely right. And it's so interesting in that I like to say it's the most diverse country on the planet. And by that, obviously everyone's brown, but there's 400 different languages that are spoken, right? And so if you're trapped anywhere in India and you go 100 kilometers north, south, east, west, the food that people eat, the clothes they wear, the language they speak, the way they engage is just completely different. And so for us to answer that question, we started thinking about what was true for the two of us. So both Rahul and I's moms are Punjabi and Northern, right? And Rahul's father, who's uh, Chef Vinod, who's really been instrumental in helping us craft the menu, he is from Kerala in the south. So we primarily pulled ingredients, recipes, dishes, and styles from northern India as well as the south. And a lot of Indian restaurants in the U.S. primarily feature northern Indian or certain southern recipes like dosa and so on. And what we've really tried to do is bring the best of both together under one roof.
5: Did you try to do that in a way that they all go together well? Because this can be a challenge of non-Chipotle fast casual food, that you have different flavors and sometimes when you put them together, you have chaos.
6: You are absolutely correct. So before we opened, we spent so much time going through the menu item by item by item. And, you know, there's certain things which we absolutely love and think are so delicious and recognize that if someone's not well-seasoned with Indian cuisine or well-versed with it, that, you know, if you add that that dish and it's going to it's not going to go well with some of the other items. So, it was a pretty extensive process of actually figuring out not only what tastes delicious, but how do you how do you make it in a way that people can't really mess it up too much. And and some of that of course is the team and teaching the team and training and so on and so forth, but the other part of it is really thinking about what ingredients pair well together.
5: I would imagine most of your staff Uh, do not have Indian backgrounds.
6: You imagine correctly. (laughs) So
5: uh, that has to be an interesting training process to really like get them into it and and embrace it. And it's probably not hard for them to like it because it's delicious, but bringing them, educating them so that they can educate others is probably hard.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So when we started RASA, something we talked a lot about and we still talk about today is, is how food is the gateway to culture, right? It's a lot easier to get a, $10 Ten dollar bowl at Rasa than it is to buy a thousand dollar plane ticket to India, and so we have thought a lot about how might we use our brand, our food, our physical space as a way to introduce people to a new cuisine and a new culture. And for us, that actually starts with our teams. And when we bring people in, you know, we go through each different menu item. Sometimes we'll have Indian guests that we we've we very consciously crafted the names of our menu in a way that doesn't intimidate people right so instead of calling it sog we'll call it spinach instead of calling it bang and we'll call it eggplant right we'll maintain that flavor that's authentic but we've made it in a way where it's not as scary for someone who's new to the culture and cuisine and so even with our team we have to sometimes train of we we have uh lentil chips for example indians will call that papadum and so we have to train our team okay if someone says papadum this is what they mean. This is that dish. Things like that.
5: Oh yeah, that's important because otherwise you alienate your alien guests when they're like your your Indian guests, <laughs> and they're like the person working here doesn't know this food.
6: Exactly. So it's I view it as a really fun opportunity to open people's minds, and and we even have some team members who now are cooking Indian food, Latino team members who are cooking Indian food for their families, and they're eager to learn. And you know, we just hired a, a chief operating officer, and he's been pouring through books on India and watching documentaries on Netflix and things like that so it's really exciting to be able to execute on that mission of opening people's minds to new cultures and new ideas right there inside of our own four walls
5: does it take very long to train your customers about how to how to engage with a rasa
6: uh, yeah I mean I think it's a complex answer it's a yes and and it really depends on who the customer is I mean we have everyone from five-year-olds to 80-year-old Indian grandmothers. And so inside of that, the core fast casual customer, generally speaking, is comfortable with this model. There's a lot of brands that have, have pioneered this service format and made it mainstream, whether that's Chipotle or Cava or Sweetgreen, so on and so forth. So there is a general awareness of how the system works, where we have more of an education hurdle is around a couple couple facets. One is educating people that You know, Indian food is not all spicy. It's not greasy and oily like some lunch buffets they've maybe visited in the past are. And then, actually, helping people understand: okay, what is tamarind? Right? Like, what does that taste like? What is kokum? What are some of these ingredients that are new that people haven't tasted before? And so, it is—it's an answer that really depends based on who the guest is.
5: Well. You're all in the the D.C. area and that is an area that's had good Indian food for a long time actually. But of course, that doesn't mean that your customers have had it just because it's available. There's also great Ethiopian food in India that some people like and others don't – have never had it.
6: Totally. And it's it's so interesting especially as we've moved out more into the suburbs. We've opened in uh, Fairfax, Virginia and Rockville, Maryland and inside of – that we're seeing a lot of people, our parents' age, who have grown up eating Indian food, loving Indian food of the culture, who are coming in, and they're just so overjoyed, and they're they're almost shook of, oh my gosh, this is our culture shared in this way. We have the opportunity to pick and choose. We never we've always wondered when would this when would this arrive, and now it's here.
5: One and those of us who are food writing trend watcher types have been waiting for Indian food to mm-hmm. sort of cross over into the mainstream for a long time. And I have, since I started in this job 24 years ago, people have been saying Indian food is going to be the next one. Right. And then Korean came along mm-hmm. and so many others sort of leapfrogged over that. And now the last three restaurants I went to in New York City were Indian and, you know, sort of high profile, cool, fun Indian restaurants.
6: Yeah, absolutely.
5: And, you know, now, you know, corporate Uh, companies that used to only have events in like steakhouses are having them in Indian restaurants. So Mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. do you think finally Indian foods time has come in the United States?
6: Yeah, I do. I really do. And it feels like we're on the tipping point in this moment. I mean, you look at a brand, even like a velvet taco, they've got chicken tikka tacos and you start to see the grocery store and the way that the aisle in the grocery store continues to expand year over year over year. And when we look at it, we feel as though Indian culture has made such massive inroads into the United States from film, from music. I mean, if you look at corporate America, the CEO of PepsiCo, of Starbucks, of Microsoft, you name it, there are so many Indian leaders and our cultures had so much more influence of late. And the one area that has just been catching up to that has been the food. You know, there's still to date no regional or national brand that has really become a household name in Indian cuisine. And so as we look at it, we feel that today the consumer is not only open to Indian food, but they love it and they're looking for more options. And we're excited to, to be a part of that movement.
5: That's exciting. When, and some of the maybe older trendy Asian flavors like, and cuisines like Korean and Thai do not have uh, national or Vietnamese don't have a sort of a single national uh, champion. So, so much runway for you guys.
6: Yeah, we uh, we believe so, too. I think it's such a it's such an exciting moment. I mean, it, it feels like our food is is finally ready to arrive in this country and make a big impact. And we uh, we're, we're honored to, to be able to do so.
5: What does it feel like to be cool instead of, like,
6: not cool? Oh, you know, I, I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. When we were kids, it was, like, the opposite of cool. You know, people were making funny accents to you and, you know, girls wouldn't talk to you because you were Indian or whatever that might be. And today, it's almost like everyone's trying to go to an Indian wedding. And it's, it's been really fascinating to, to witness a culture go from a perceived negative to such a dramatically perceived positive. And uh, yeah, it feels good. <laughs> really grateful that um, our country, at least in in some parts of it, is is really choosing to open its mind to to embrace new possibilities.
5: Why, why do you think that happened? Is it like movies like *Bend It Like Beckham*, which is a quite old movie? Oh, it's, and a it's a great different. movie. <laughs> I love it. So good. And there's a lot of food in it.
6: Yes. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's a it's a multitude of factors. I mean, we were talking about it earlier yoga's roots in the country, India as a country as a whole is now having a moment. It was often, you know I, know, I know we don't use this term anymore, but it was often viewed as like a third world country, right? Like you had that Indiana Jones movie where they've got monkey brains on the plate. And today you're now having President Biden greeting the Indian prime minister for official state dinner. And I think it's a reflection of India's rising status as a country globally. And that's been mirrored by the rise of Indians in American culture.
5: Oh, it's funny. I, I actually have been to an Indian wedding in India. Okay. Or it was it was a half Indian? My.
6: Did you break out some of those salsa moves?
5: I did not. <laughs> um, there weren't a lot of dancing. Wasn't a lot of dancing at the, this one. It was a, So my Anglo-Icelandic Canadian friend married a high caste Tamil Brahmin, an Ayer, uh. in. But it was in Bangalore. And so I was there for breakfast and there were obviously the banana leaves and the lady ladling out all the food and we're eating with our hands, which is harder than people realize. Like if you, it, it drips down your arm if you don't know how to do it, right?
6: I'll, I'll teach you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um,
5: uh, I've practiced it a bit with different Indian cuisines, West African, whatever. But I was sitting next to uh, an Indian guy and I said, what is this that I'm eating? He said, I don't know. I'm from Calcutta.
6: So, you know,
5: just totally different part of the country.
6: like Totally. And, and, and you know, the, the last thing I wanted to add uh, on that, that previous question was that we're also just standing on the shoulders of a lot of really brave and bold immigrants like our parents who chose to show up in this company, with in this country with not much in their pockets and worked their, their butts off to figure out how do we make a life? How do we make a name for ourselves? And so, you know, in our story we're only able to be here because of all of the work that our fathers have done, uh, not only practically in raising and supporting us, but also from a culinary and cuisine and industry standpoint, they were the real pioneers, their generation of restaurateurs, They were the ones that were opening back in the day when landlords were saying, Hey, we don't want your smelly food in our spots, right? They were the ones that were really slogging the long hours and doing the real hard work of opening people's minds. And so what we're doing is kind of standing on their shoulders in a continuation of that good work.
5: That's beautiful. And a lovely way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for hanging out with me, Sahil. And uh, I hope to see you around more. Absolutely. Thanks.